The following sermon was delivered on January 10, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled The Office of Deacon on 1 Timothy 3, 8-13. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. So boys and girls, pick up your arm and look at it. Touch it. Is that arm part of who you are? Is your person a body as well as a soul? You see, a lot of Christians today think about us as simply disembodied souls. And the body is not really that important. But God made us people in His image. Designed us exactly as we are to reflect the beauty and glory of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ died to redeem us as people, not just souls. He's died to redeem your body. And because of that, throughout the history of the church, God has expressed particular interest in the physical and material needs of his people. He's always come amongst them to care for them and to feed them and to provide for them as he did the 40 years they were in the wilderness. Our Savior himself was greatly concerned about the physical needs of people and not simply their spiritual needs. Though his miracles were types and parables of the great work that uh, he would do as our prophet, priest, and king, he was also amongst us as a servant, tending, Think how many times in Scripture you read, he looked on the crowd and he had compassion. Of course, in that compassion, he taught them. But also in the compassion, he fed them and he healed them and he comforted them. God has redeemed us as people, consisting of body and soul. And because of that, then, the church has always had this responsibility to care for the whole person not just to minister to spiritual needs of the people. And God has embodied this responsibility in the office of deacon, the office that we are going to consider this evening here in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Now, the last two times we considered the office of the elder, the bishop, the older seer, the one who has spiritual maturity, who then watches over to shepherd and guide and protect the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ. That office is manifested in both the teaching elder, the minister, and in the ruling elders. When we considered the qualifications for that office, the personal spiritual qualifications, the domestic qualifications, and the ecclesiastical or church qualifications. Having laid that foundation, Paul now addresses Timothy and us by the Holy Spirit about this office, this work of the deacon. And what I want to show you from these verses is because the office of deacon is a spiritual office with spiritual benefits, the deacon must be spiritually qualified. Because it's a spiritual office with spiritual benefits, the deacon must be spiritually qualified. Now, as I said about the elders, when we talk here about 
deacons and qualifications. We're talking about all of us from different angles and responsibilities. So don't sit here and tune this out as we deal with deacons. If nothing less, Lord will there'll come a day when you're going to have to nominate and elect men as deacons, but there's much more to it than that. So we're going to consider three things from these verses. We're going to look at the spiritual nature of the office, the qualifications for the office, and the reward or the benefit of the office. We begin with the spiritual nature of the office because here there is a great error in the thoughts of God's people. Because of this disjunction that we have between uh, the body and the soul or the body and spirit, we also have this reflected in our view of deacons. And at best, many people think of them as the, the caretakers of the church, uh, the folks that make sure that the lights are on, the bills are paid, and the place is kept clean. But consider this word, deacon. You know what that word means? It means servant. So in Matthew 20, as we read about our Savior, uh, he came not to serve, to be served, but to serve. Right before that, he said that his disciples must be deacons. All of his disciples must be servants. The word means servant. To serve as a servant in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the essence of the office of deacon. We find it first established for us in the New Covenant in Acts chapter 6. Whether these men were the first deacons or whether simply the office is laid out here, uh, there's disagreement, but we can clearly see that what Christ is doing is providing for the material needs of the church. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve. It's our same word in its verbal form, in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And they laid their hands on them. And notice the consequence. Come back to this. The word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So here, the Holy Spirit leads the church to this responsibility. The deacons there had two responsibilities. One was to free up the elders for their work of prayer, study, teaching, preaching, evangelism. The other was to minister to the physical needs of the poor in the congregation. But perhaps you've already gathered from our Old Testament reading that the office of deacon, the foundation for that office, is laid for us in the Old Testament, in the office of the priestly Levites. The Levites, that subsection of priests, had the responsibility to care for the tabernacle and the temple, to prepare the sacrifices, to take care of the upkeep, and to administer the funds, but also then to collect the tithes unto those ends 
and to distribute the tithes to the poor. And so their function, amongst other things, was what we would today call a diaconal function. Now, our Savior himself, as the perfect prophet, priest, and king, established these three offices in the Old Covenant. He himself exercised them through the Old Covenant prophet, priest, and kings in his own earthly ministry and now from heaven. But in doing so, he established a parallel. So the parallels are not exactly always uh, the same, but basically the Old Covenant prophet is now the New Covenant preacher of the gospel. And the very word prophet is used for preaching, for example, in Romans chapter 12. And the Old Covenant king, the ruler, that carries over then into the rulers, the, the ruling elders of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the priestly office of the Levite now is carried over in the office of the deacon. In fact, Christ, who exercised his priestly office on earth as a priest and Levite, both in the sacrifice of himself, but in his compassion for the poor, now from heaven continues to exercise his mediatorial office, but also his serving office as Christ ministers now through the deacons of the church. And so you see, it is, in fact, a spiritual office, an office that we know has been appointed by Christ, the king of the church. We see that here as these qualifications are laid out for us, first the elder and then the deacon. We see it earlier in Philippians chapter 1, where uh, Paul addresses not just the elders in the church of Philippi, but also the deacons. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, To all the saints of Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers, that's the elders, and deacons. So by this point in Paul's ministry, even these newly established mission congregations had elders and deacons. And these deacons had exactly the same responsibility of those Levites in the Old Covenant, to care for the church property, to uh, maintain um, all of the physical needs and requirements of the church, both physically, legally, whatever would be required, but also to minister to the poor, as we see here in Acts chapter 6. So in the PCA Book of Order, we have this description of their office. It is the duty of deacons to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to any who may be in distress. It is their duty to develop the grace of liberality in the members of the church, to devise effective methods of collecting gifts of the people, and to distribute these gifts among the objects to which they are contributed. They shall have the care of the property of the congregation, both real and personal, and shall keep in proper repair the church edifice and other buildings belonging to the congregation. Now, I hope then what you can see is the importance of this office. It's an office appointed by Christ. It's an office that is necessary to the well-being of the church and to the gospel prosperity of the church. I pointed out to you to notice what happens here in Acts after the stack ministry begins. In verse 7, 
The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. This isn't a coincidence, you see. Why would the priests be mentioned now at this point? Because they see that this important function of the priesthood has now been uh, bought into, established in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was part of this that the church prospered then. And a church that is going to prosper spiritually must have godly elders and godly deacons. That's particularly important for us. Foundational to our philosophy at Antioch is a parish model of ministry, both of nurture and of outreach. And for that to happen effectively, we will eventually need deacons who will be working with the elders, leading the congregation, and seeking to reach what we're going to call our parish. These people that God and His providence have put us in the middle of them. And many of them indeed are sheep without shepherds. And it's our desire that we shall do so. But we're going to need deacons under that end. So even now as you are praying, you should be praying regularly that God will give us men to be elders and men to be deacons. Because we need them to accomplish the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in this spiritual office. And so you see, I trust that it is a spiritual office. If it's a spiritual office, then there must be what? Spiritual qualifications for that office. And that's what Paul is doing now in beginning here in verse 8. And notice how he begins this discussion. He says, likewise. Now, we met this word likewise back in chapter 2, where Paul first discusses what he wants men to do in verse 8. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray. And then in verse 9, likewise, in, in italics, I want, because it's being supplied, women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. Paul, in the pastoral epistles, uses this word likewise to take us through various classes of people and their responsibilities. And just as the likewise of verse 9 in chapter 2 picks up the verb, I want men to pray, I want women to adorn themselves, now the likewise in verse 8 picks up the verb of uh, chapter 2 of verse 8, an overseer then must be above reproach. Likewise, Deacons must be men of dignity. And so by this connection, the Apostle Paul shows us now that as he's moving to the second class of office bearer, he now moves to the distinct qualifications for that office. And again, we can look at them under the three headings which we examine the office of the elder. We have personal qualifications, we have ecclesiastical qualifications, and we have domestic qualifications. There are five personal qualifications. In the first place, the deacon must be a man of dignity. Likewise, deacons must be men of dignity. The word has to do with one, in fact, I think the New King James says they must be reverent men. It's a description of a man who stands out in the midst of his brethren and his sisters as one who has a certain bearing of gravitas and dignity, of respectability. A man that you're willing to trust your children to, willing to trust your money to, you're willing to trust 
your church to. A man who uh, carries himself well in bearing the responsibilities that God has placed upon his shoulders. A dignified, reverent, venerable man. Second qualification that Paul gives us here is that he must be a sincere man, not double-tongued. What a graphic way to think of what Paul has in mind here. It's two things, really. In the first place, not one who speaks out of both sides of his mouth. Second is not one who is a tail-bearer. Now, if you think about it, you can see how both of these things apply very importantly to the office of deacon. If he speaks out of both sides of his mouth, he's dealing with you and you're having your problem, he's being warm and sympathetic. Then he turns around and he goes over to his buds and he makes fun of you. He mocks you. He looks down on you with contempt. You catch on to those kind of things. And pretty soon this is not a man that you trust, not a man you're going to go to with your problems, particularly if you had financial problems and needed help from the church. Now the other is even more important. You must not be a tailbearer, as Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 11. Tailbearer gossips. And you can see how this is true for both offices, but it's particularly true here for the deacon who's going to know, should know, intimate details about needs of people in the congregation financially. Now, it's just a true of, of elders who will know their spiritual needs. And we hold these things in a trust. We must not just be speaking about them outside the circle of the office bearers. We must be careful not to betray things to our wives. I stand here tonight to tell you I know too many cases in too many churches with too many ministries is that too many minis? Been ruined because of gossiping wives of office bearers. If people can't trust the elder or the deacon, again, they're not going to go to them with their problems and their difficulties. And so he must be a sincere man, a man who speaks sympathetically, sincerely and honestly to those with whom he deals. Third, he must be um, a temperate man. He's not to be addicted to much wine. Again, as we said before, the Bible, when the Bible talks about temperance, it's not what happened in the 19th century temperance movement that said that all alcohol was verboten. It simply means to use alcohol as well as all other stimulants in moderation. Not to be enslaved to anything besides the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to fall into drunkenness or patterns of excessive living and to be temperate then in all habits. I think it's interesting when many people around here say, well, we know the Bible um, is not against alcohol, but drunkenness is a problem in our day. Well, they just not read their Bible, have they? Obviously, drunkenness was a problem in the Old Testament. Drunkenness was clearly a problem in New Testament churches. There are many warnings against it. In fact, the apostle says, the drunkard shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So the deacon, like the elder, must be a man of temperate habits, and particularly not addicted to wine. And then he must be, best way to put this, not an ambitious man, not a greedy man. Paul puts it, he must not be fond of sordid gain. Some Bibles say dishonest 
gain. You see, this is not simply covetousness. That's what underlies this. But the problem here is a man that's motivated by his greed and covetousness. To be fond of dishonest or filthy gain is that which motivates a man in the exercise of his office. Again, that's true for elders who are not to be greedy or they must not be covetous. But again, you see, particularly as the deacons dealing with the financial affairs of the church. Again, many cases of embezzlement. It's why churches need to put in many safeguards. It's why here we have two men who count the offering, record it. So when it's taken then to the bank, there's, there's a, a witnessed a record of the offerings. It's why the treasurer of the church then must give to the elders a reconciled bank statement. And the churches must put many things into place so as not to tip them on the one hand. But it's very important that the man who is a deacon is not driven by gain, not by knowing your financial situation, not by taking advantage of the church or its funds or your funds, but a man who is content, a man who is just the opposite of fond of sordid gain, as we'll see more in a moment, a man who is generous with his own possessions. And then, like the elder, he must be a man who is spiritually mature, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The term mystery of the faith simply refers to the essence of the doctrine of the Scripture. In this chapter, if we read it, Paul uses this word, this concept, when he says in verse 16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he discusses the humiliation and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. These things that are gospel mysteries are not things that are unknown to us. They're the things that the gospel reveals to us. They're adumbrated. They are set forth in shadowy forms in the Old Testament. But it's through the apostolic revelation by the Holy Spirit that they're all spelled out. So the mystery is not that which is esoteric or unknowable or known only to a few. No, the mystery is simply the essence of New Testament theology. And thus the mystery of the faith is the revelation of the Lord God. He's a man who holds to the whole counsel of God as it is revealed in Scripture, and he does so with a clear conscience. This afternoon at the table, some of us were talking about some of these cases that have happened recently in leaders in, in the church, and my wife had read an a, a article by one woman speaking of one of these men and said he he knew he was dying, and he still didn't repent. See, that's the, the hardness of heart that comes from suppressing the conscience. Remember, those of you that were here, we saw this back in chapter 1, when Paul there tells us to, to, to fight the good fight, keep faith, and a good conscience, which some have rejected, verse 19, and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Shipwreck. Why? Because they hardened their conscience. And first, it's a little bitty thing, maybe a little white lie, a little deception, a little cheating here or there. And the conscience pricks, the spirit pricks through the conscience, and you harden that. You refuse to listen to that. The next sin is more bold. The conscience again speaks, and you quell the conscience. 
till eventually the conscience is hardened and you suffer, suffer shipwreck in the faith, as so many have, as we hear about these things in the Christian culture around us. We must hold to the gospel, its doctrines and its commandments with a pure and clear conscience. That's not sinless. You maintain a good conscience by confessing your sins openly as they need to be confessed to those against whom or before whom you sinned and of course always to the Lord God. But the spiritually mature man is a man who holds to the mystery of the faith with a good conscience. Now as I said, this isn't simply about deacons, it's about all of us, isn't it? Just as the elders, those qualifications given to elders are to exemplify what a mature Christian looks like, these qualifications, these five things are simply to manifest what a mature Christian should be. And I would call on each one of you to examine himself by these five things. Are you dignified? Are you young people, although it's great to have fun and to play, but are you developing in this concept of dignity and, and um, a sobriety of character? Yes, laugh and joke, but um, you, you're being shaped by the gospel. Is that true of, of, uh, of all of us who are here? Our addictions, are you secretly addicted to some stimulant? or perhaps to computer pornography, and you're hardening your conscience against those things. And going down the list, you're free from covetousness and greed, you're spiritually mature. Now, do these things mark your life? They must mark your lives as men, as men who are preparing for the ministry. There's no difference in the qualifications for an elder and a deacon, we see that. They, Many parallels here. In fact, as I'll show you more fully in a moment, um, a minister must have all the deacon's gifts and qualifications. It's not compartmentalized. The minister must embody it all. The ruling elder must embody at least six of these gifts that we'll look at more in just a moment. Do you? And are you developing in these things as you prepare yourself for the gospel ministry? And if you sit here tonight and you know that, no, this is not who I am. In fact, maybe if you're honest, it's not even who you want to be. These things don't attract you. Godliness does not attract you. Holiness is not pleasant to you. You like your lifestyle of sin. You like where you are living. And you need to understand that at best you are right now fearfully in a backslidden condition and quite possibly unconverted. If your heart's cold and indifferent, I encourage you to cry out to God in repentance. Ask Him to have mercy on you. And so these personal qualifications. We see next the ecclesiastical qualifications, the church qualifications. And what Paul says here is that these men must also, verse 10, first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. It's very similar to what he says about elders. Don't put a neophyte into office. Well, you're going to have to test a man to know if he should be an elder. But he particularly says that we need to test men before they're placed into the office of deacon, obviously into the office then of elder. Test them in two areas in particular. 
in terms of gifts, in terms of these spiritual qualifications. So we take the second thing first, is they must be tested so that uh, they are beyond reproach, that there is a, a consistency to the life of this person who is going to serve as a deacon or a minister or an elder in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's through the testing, the examination of the elders in the church that these things become apparent. Or the elders should come alongside a man and say, you know, we want you to work on this thing or that thing in your life. But particularly here, this testing has to do with the exercise of the gifts of office. And I've already alluded to Romans chapter 12, our offering. But here in this Romans 12 passage, the apostle lays out what I think are the only seven gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to the church. They manifest themselves in multiple ways of ministry. But underlying whatever those ministries are, if they're valid, will be one of these seven gifts. As I said a few weeks ago, all seven must be in the minister of the gospel, at least all six in the ruling elder, and at least three in the deacon. Verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. If service, and this is our word deacon, if office of deacon in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So you see these three gifts, exercising a service ministry, giving in liberality to encourage that in others, and showing mercy with cheerfulness. Now how does the church test these things? You do so by watching men. You see, a man doesn't become an evangelist when you send him to the mission field, does he? No, he must have the heart of an evangelist before he goes to the mission field. And a deacon doesn't become a servant when you hang a title over his name. No, the church is to test them in to see who are the servants, who are exercising service in the church, who are ministering mercy with great hilarity and joy and not begrudgingly, who is giving liberally so we can encourage others to give liberally. Now, the way the test works is you just watch people. Throughout most of my ministry, I've had churches full of seminary students. A lot of interns, or a few, pretending where I was. And I always watch. When something needs to be done, who are the guys over here in a holy circle talking about theology? And who are the guys over here who see this needs to be done? And they pitch in, whether they set up a table or help somebody or whatever it is. You see, if you don't have that heart for servant, not only shouldn't you be a deacon, you shouldn't be a minister. We're deacons. Our Savior was a minister and an elder and a deacon. And we are to be ministers if we're ministers, elders, and deacons as well. And the elder is to be an elder and deacon as well. And that's why in our church government we can have churches organized just with elders because elders must have all six of these gifts. They must be tested. 
This is also why, it's not because it's a promotion ladder, but it's why you do see men who have been deacons who then will be put into the office of elder because they have all six gifts. They've been tested. They've manifested these three, and they have the three others. But we must test. Very important. So once again, the church here is committed to uh, internship, to discipleship, to mentoring, to training men, not just to be ministers, but godly men, husbands, fathers, and leaders in the church. Ecclesiastical qualifications. And then the domestic qualifications, very similar to what Paul said about the elders. He said he must be a husband. Uh, oh, uh, well, let's go to verse 11. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now we're going to deal with that, Lord willing, the 31st. Because not only does it clear proof here against women deacons, but it's also a very, again, godly pattern for what Christ wants women to be in the family and in the congregation. But deacons now must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. Now, we've examined this language a few weeks ago, so I'm just going to skim across the top. If you missed that sermon, go to whatever that place is where Zach has put them. It's published on the website and uh, hear the sermon. Uh, and so he must be a one-woman man, as we saw, then not a polygamist, but also a morally upright man. A one-woman man is a good way to think about it, who manifests that in the proper management of his children and of his household. Now we saw what that meant. To manage one's household is to be ultimately responsible for the, the whole culture of the household, its spiritual nature, its functioning, everything else. Not that he does it all, but as Truman says, the buck stops here. This means to have a wife in submission whom he serves and loves sacrificially. And it means to have children who are being reared in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so the deacon is seeking then the spiritual well-being of his children, nurturing boys and girls in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. He must manage his household. Well, again, the same thing I said about elders. If he can't take care of his little flock, how can he minister to the needs of this diverse flock to which he has, which has been entrusted to him? And so that's the domestic qualifications. As I said, we'll look at the women part in a couple of weeks. So we see that it's a spiritual office. Um, in chapter 6, perhaps you notice these were men wise and full of the Holy Spirit. It, we've seen the qualifications of this office. And then quickly now in verse 13, the reward or benefit of the office. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The deacon that works well, who labors as a servant in the church, of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be the one on that day of judgment who hears his Lord say, well done, well done. That's the good standing. That is the reward of the Savior. That is the blessing that covers all of the toil and the sweat and the tears of laboring as a deacon. Good standing. It also referred to as sanctification. That if we exercise our gifts well, seek to improve in our spiritual qualifications, we're going to grow in grace and godliness. The privilege of serving in the body of Christ. 
just the reward of knowing that you've been part of this grand scheme of the Savior by which he shepherds his flock. And that leads to the last part of this reward, and that is great confidence or boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. In our Holy Savior, prophet, priest, and king, our incarnate Jesus, um, there's this revelation of faith, and we have boldness then, because the conscience is not working against us. We've sought to exercise our office accordingly. We have boldness in the gospel. We're then able to speak to others about Christ and about this church where he has placed us. The deacon served well, then what we read there in Acts 6-7 is going to happen. Through parish ministry, others can be brought to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll have bold men and leading this church and bold and winsome women following in the outreach of the gospel and the diaconal ministry of the church. So as much before us here as we recognize that this is a spiritual office with grand spiritual benefits, and thus we must seek these qualifications. We are to pray for such men. Pray for yourselves that God will give you qualifications and gifts. You young men preparing for the ministry, pray that these things will develop in you. Those of us here tonight who are ministers, we'll continue to examine ourselves. Those who are ruling elders by ourselves, by what we have here, are revealed to us by the Savior. It's an important part of the future of this church. It's an important part of the foundation. And we seek these things then not in ourselves, but in Christ. The Savior is the one who will mold us Make us servants, the one who said, I come not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for ministry. He's going to serve us tonight, isn't he? Yes, he reminds us of his death and resurrection. But he's given us himself here. He's host and he's meal. It's an amazing thing. He's the host. He invites us to his table. But he's the meal. As we eat on him, he's saying, you see, I'm going to nurture you. I'm caring for you, and I'm going to do it, he says, through the church where I've appointed this ordinance. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.